And welcome to Calvary Baptist Church. This is just our second Sunday in our new building, and uh, it's incredible to see what God has done and is continuing to do in the life of our church and, and its ministries. Many of you uh, may remember the Chronicles of Narnia, and perhaps you've read the books or seen the movies or both. And so perhaps from this you might know uh, that much of the story is, is really a big Christian allegory, the lion Aslan, representing Jesus. And basically, the movie starts with four children, at least the, the first movie, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, who find a secret passage to this fantasy world called Narnia. But when they arrive, Narnia is going through some tough times. The White Witch has oppressed the people of Narnia for a hundred years and is actively against the lion, Aslan. One of the children, Edmund, betrays his siblings to join with the witch, but soon regrets his mistake. He later, however, returns to his siblings who forgive him, but because of his betrayal, according to the quote-unquote deep magic of Narnia, a price must be paid. Edmund must die. And Edmund must die. After some negotiation, though, Edmund is set free to the joy of his siblings, who all celebrate together. But unknown to them, Aslan has made a deal where he will die in the boy's place. The price for blood must still be paid. The curse is not simply arbitrarily dismissed. Someone must die. So Aslan takes the curse and dies sacrificially for the boy. Edmund deserved to die for his betrayal, just as we too deserve to die because of our sin. Yet, Aslan died in the boy's place. Now, of course, no metaphor is perfect in in every regard, but I'm focusing on the main theme here. And for us, the judgment of God that hovers over us has been born by Jesus himself on the cross. As water is emptied out on the ground, so the hell that we deserve was poured out upon him. Today, I'm going to be continuing through the book of Galatians. And last time um, I preached, we looked at Galatians 3, verses 1 to 9, and the difference between being self-reliant versus Christ-reliant. And this week, we're looking at verses 10 to 14, And there's one main theme I want to keep prominent throughout this, and it's this. We are blessed because Christ was cursed. We are blessed because Christ was cursed. Think that through for a second. Perhaps you haven't heard it in that language, but this is the language that Paul uses here. And perhaps you've heard things like, Jesus died for your sins, or Jesus paid it all. But what exactly do we mean when we say that? Jesus paid it all, but how exactly does this transaction take place? How does Christ being cursed relate to me being blessed? If you're anything like me, especially in the first few years of being a Christian, I understood these things to be true, but didn't quite grasp why exactly this was the case. 
And so as we work through this text together, I want to illustrate two main points that are not only going to help explain this passage, but hopefully cause us to leave here worshiping God. And so the two main points are, number one, we deserve to be cursed. We deserve to be cursed. That's number one. Point two, Christ was cursed for us and redeems us. Christ was cursed for us and redeems us. And so with that, let's take a look at our first point. We deserve to be cursed. Verses 10 to 12, they say this. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Now, before we get going, let's just make sure we know what Paul is talking about. What is the law? In verse 10, he mentions the book of the law. What is that exactly, and how does it relate to me being cursed? And this all may seem a little disjointed and confusing, especially if you're here and you're sort of new to church, and, but I'm going to explain this. The law that Paul is talking about here is the Jewish law. All 613 laws that made up the law of Moses, that God gave to Moses in the Old Testament. This is something that the people of Israel were expected to abide by. It included all sorts of things like circumcision, dietary restrictions, rules about cleanliness, criminal law, And basically, as the Israelites inhabited the territory promised to them, it was meant to separate them from all the surrounding pagan nations. They knew that they were God's chosen people because the law was given to them. Abraham was their ancestor. And so, in the Old Testament, if you wanted to follow God, you had to keep his law. And if you were not an Israelite, and you wanted to follow God, you had to essentially become Jewish and practice all of these commandments. And now, the temptation for some of us when reading passages like this in the New Testament is to immediately think the law is bad. Law equals bad. But, but that's not exactly what Paul is really saying. Notice he says, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Thomas Schreiner says, people are not under a curse for doing the law. They are under a curse because they fail to properly do all of it. The law, in and of itself, does not curse us. So here's how this worked. Everyone knows that nobody is without sin, right? Everybody sins. Even as Christians, we continue to sin. And so the Jewish law made provisions for this and required certain sacrifices to atone for these sins. And so there was an actual way to keep the entire law in a sense. As one writer says, the law did allow for blunders, though not for deliberate transgression. So there was a way in which if you kept yourself from certain sins and made proper atonement for all your involuntary sins, under the law, you could be blameless. That was possible. That's why Paul himself is able to say in Philippians 3, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, he says, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, 
as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Blameless. And so, so why does there seem to be this contradiction, seemingly, between what Paul says in Philippians versus what he says in Galatians? In Philippians, he says he was blameless under the law. In Galatians, he says, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. So which is it? Is Paul simply contradicting himself or is something deeper really going on here? First off, I'd like to emphasize unequivocally that we are not justified by works of the law, but by faith. And though you could be blameless under the law in a sense, you're not justified by the law. The law, though it is holy, was meant to separate the Israelites from the surrounding nations and ultimately point towards Christ. Steve Dahl reminded me this week that the law's only value in justification is pointing you to faith in God. And that's why Paul quotes the prophet Habakkuk in saying, the righteous shall live by faith. And Abraham, who lived well before the law was even given, was counted as righteous before God because of his faith. And this is where I'd like to restate the theme of the overall passage. We are blessed because Christ was cursed. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, he changes everything about how this Jewish law functions. Where you used to have to sacrifice animals to atone for certain sins under the Jewish law, Christ himself became the ultimate sacrifice for us on the cross. As one writer notes, since Jesus has come, Old Testament sacrifices no longer atone for sin because a new and better sacrifice has come. Hebrews 9 puts it, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And this is why Paul is able to say he was blameless under the law on one hand, but on the other he's justified. No, no one is justified by the law on the other. He's holding these two things up to us simultaneously, and they're not contradictory because the law points towards Christ and the need to have faith in him. And if by Christ coming, he made the Old Testament sacrificial system obsolete, then anyone who chooses to still live by that Jewish law, they actually do need to keep it 100% perfectly without sinning at all. Whereas in the past, you could make a sacrifice to cover your sin. That has now been done away with. And so their sin remains uncovered and unforgiven. And that is one of the reasons Paul is able to say no one is justified before God by the law because since Christ has come, the only way to be justified outside of actually putting your faith in Christ is to never sin, which of course is impossible, and thus that's the crux of Paul's argument. John MacArthur uses the image of a boat tied down to a single chain tied down to a dock by a single chain, rather, and the boat is majestic, and it's seafaring, and the dock is sturdy, and the chain is strong and resilient, except for one single link in the chain. And so when storms come and sea levels rise, all it takes for that boat to drift out to sea is for that one weak link in the chain to break. 
so it is with the law, as James 2.10 states, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. All it takes is one little slip up, one little blunder for you to be judged by God. And so the immediate question that's asked of us is, how is that fair? That's an impossible standard. Nobody can keep that. And that's, that's exactly right. And that's actually the point. This realization is meant to drive us to a proper understanding of our own inability so that when we look upon the insufficiency of ourselves, it's meant to cause us to gaze upon the sufficiency of Christ. And yet how many of us live day to day failing to look upon Christ because we're actually naive enough to believe that we are sufficient? I mean, isn't this the selling point of today? You can be your own God. And yet, do you ever realize how easy it is to forget the faithfulness of God, especially after a crisis is over? In the middle of it, it will, Lord, help me, deliver me from this. I'll do anything if you just protect me, take this away from me. And yet, afterwards, we quickly forget about that. And we just go back to simply living our lives, pretending like we're in control of things. And yet, this is the sad reality, not only of non-believers, but also of many Christians. Charles Spurgeon, that great 19th century preacher, says this about some of the Christians that he was addressing in, in his day. He says, they have not enough caution to look at their inward experience. They have not enough vigor to care about excitement but they live a kind of listless, dreamy, comatose life. He says, you believe that you were saved years ago, you united yourselves to a Christian church and were baptized, and you concluded that all is right. Since that time, you have kept up the habit of prayer, you have been honest, you have subscribed to church funds, and have done your duty outwardly as a Christian. But there has been very little vitality in your godliness. It has been surface work, skin-deep consistency. You have not been grievously exercised about sin. You have not been bowed under the weight of inward corruption. Neither have you, on the other hand, been exhilarated by a sense of divine love. He says, you have gone on dreamily, as I have heard of soldiers marching when they were asleep. Of all modes of living, if you be a Christian, this is one of the most perilous. And if you be not a Christian, it is one of the most seductive. Church, we deserve to be cursed. And when we escape the illusion that we are in control that we are sufficient, then we can look rightly upon ourselves and only then truly appreciate what Christ has done for us. So if you're not a Christian, perhaps this whole concept of sin and judgment seems a little overboard, and I would say it's because we fail to truly see how evil we are. There are scales over our eyes, and yet even as Christians, we often think the same thing. 
It frustrates me how fickle my heart often is. Why do so many things capture my attention? I could spend three hours on YouTube and labor over five minutes of Bible reading. And, and could it be because I truly don't appreciate the extent of what Christ has done for me? And how can I do that if I do not properly see how rotten I am? I mean, it's quite easy to think, why all this fuss? I'm not as bad as that guy. I haven't done this or that. I'm not perfect, but by no means am I a bad person. And yet, church, many people have gone to hell thinking that we're going to heaven under the merits of I'm not perfect, but I'm not a bad person. Psalm 14 says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And Isaiah 64, 6 says, but we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquity like the wind has taken us away. This is often referred to as the doctrine of total depravity, uh, and it does not mean that we're all as bad as we possibly could be, but rather that every part of our being has been corrupted by sin. You see, God does not hold us to the standard of other people. We're not judged in comparison to others. It's not rated on a bell curve. We're held to the standard of God. And so therefore, if we say, I'm not perfect, but I'm still a good person, the standard of God says that goodness, God's goodness, the standard for that is perfection. It's not 99.9%. It is 100% perfection. So if there's one thing that Paul here wants to strip us of completely in these first few verses is the lie of self-sufficiency. And if we do not grasp this, then we have no hope of properly understanding the hope in the next two verses. Christ became a curse for us. And so whether we be non-Christians who think, we're good enough people, we don't need this Jesus, or whether we are Christians who feel that now that God has saved us 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, we can simply cruise along in life on our own, giving lip service to the doctrine of sanctification, but failing to live it. Remember here that Paul is writing this letter to the church in Galatia. It is written to Christians. And so, church, before we can speak a word about the final verses of Christ redeeming us, of us receiving the Holy Spirit, we must grasp this truth, that we deserve to be cursed, judged, and condemned by God. Again, Charles Spurgeon remarks of a ministry experience he had as a pastor dealing with death. And he says, I stood some year or so ago by the bedside of a poor boy about 16 years of age who had been drinking himself to death in a drinking bout about a week before. And when I talked to him about sin and righteousness and judgment to come, I knew he trembled and I thought that he had laid hold on Jesus. And when I came down from the stairs after praying for him many a time, 
and trying to point him to Jesus and having but a faint hope of his ultimate salvation, I thought to myself, oh God, I would that I might preach every hour and every moment of the day the unsearchable riches of Christ for what an awful thing it is to die without a savior. What an awful thing it is to die without a savior. And and perhaps you're here today and this may all seem very doom and gloom, um, but let me paint a picture for you. Many of us have been to Cape Spear, right? Correct? Some of us? Yeah. It's about a 20-minute drive, most easterly point in North America. That's the selling point. And the cliffside, um, on the cliffside, stands a tall lighthouse. I've been there many times during the day, and there's lots of nice hiking trails in the area and such, but with the sun shining down on, on a very warm summer day, the lighthouse is just one of many attractions you could see from the cliffside to the gun battery and the trails and the waves crashing against the rocks. In the middle of the day, the light of the lighthouse cannot really be seen. Yet, if you're on a ship in the middle of the night that's been caught in a storm with hurricane-force winds and monstrous waves threatening to capsize you, that same light that was nothing more than a faint glow in the daytime has now become the only light that you can see and the only hope you have at salvation from the fury of the ocean. It is only in the dark and stormy waters of the grim news of our deserved judgment that we will see properly the light of Christ's mercy and love shine through. It is only then So with that, I transition to my second point here that we've just heard that we deserve to be cursed. But now let me explain the good news that Christ was cursed for us and redeems us. Remember the main overall theme here that we are blessed because Christ was cursed. We are blessed because Christ was cursed. Let's look at our text again, particularly verses 13 and 14. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. I mentioned at the very beginning of my sermon some obvious questions here, namely, how does Christ being cursed relate to me being blessed, and how exactly does this transaction take place? Well, first off, we need to understand the word redeemed. One writer notes that redemption comes from the marketplace. It's a payment of a price. And also that, you know, we got all these apps nowadays from Tim Hortons and McDonald's and When you gather up enough points, you can redeem them for food. In Paul's day, though, the word redeem most often referred to slavery. Slavery in Paul's day, however, was very different from what we may know from North American history. In the Roman Empire, slavery was not racial, um, and in many cases, slaves could have more wealth and economic freedom than many freed men. But if a friend or relative of an enslaved person wanted to set them free, 
they could buy them back or redeem them and then set them free. And so Christ redeemed us or bought us back because we were in slavery to sin. Remember the Chronicles of Narnia from the beginning. Aslan redeemed Edmund. How? By taking Edmund's punishment on himself. The curse on Edmund, the price on his head, was transferred to Aslan. And so too the curse on us, the price on our head, the punishment we deserve has been transferred to Jesus. And so in Narnia, Aslan dies instead of Edmund and Simple as that. But for us, the punishment is not some mere mortal death. Rather, it is eternal separation from God. Let's not water that down. So for Christ to buy us back or redeem us, in a quite literal sense, hell itself was poured out upon Jesus on the cross. And this was not merely physical suffering either. We would not be saved if Jesus only suffered physically. I mean, just look at Matthew 27, 46. He suffered spiritually as well. Jesus says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and this is why Jesus has to be both fully God and fully man. Because only God can reconcile us to himself. Yet in his humanity, in his humanity, Jesus was forsaken by God, just as we deserve to be forsaken. One preacher says that there was an amount of physical pain endured by our Savior which his body could never have borne unless it was sustained and strengthened by union with his Godhead. Yet, the sufferings of his soul were the soul of his sufferings. That soul of his endured a torment equivalent to hell itself. And now can your minds conceive what that must have been. It must have been an anguish never to be measured, an agony never to be comprehended. It is to God and God alone that his griefs were fully known. Paul quotes a verse from the Old Testament here to further prove his point from Deuteronomy 21, which says, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. And this may seem a little foreign, especially being so far removed from ancient Judaism in our culture, but one commentator has a great way of explaining this. In ancient Judaism, a criminal was who was executed, usually by stoning, was then later tied to a post, a type of tree, where his body would hang until sunset as a visible representation of rejection by God. It was not that a person became cursed by being hanged on the tree, but that he was hanged on the tree because he was cursed. Jesus did not become a curse because he was crucified, but he was cursed. He was crucified because he was cursed and taken to full sin of the world upon himself. Just as 1 Peter 2.24 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And so with all that in mind, how do we receive redemption? 
We deserve to be cursed, but Christ became a curse for us. And he redeems us. But how does this redemption take place? Well, to understand that, let's go back to verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Notice that last word there, faith. So Christ became a curse for us and redeemed us so that we could receive the blessing of Abraham. And this blessing is received by faith. But what is this blessing of Abraham? In this section of Galatians, Paul, he makes a lot of Old Testament references that he sort of expects his readers to understand, but obviously we're we're pretty far removed from first century Judaism. So to properly get some context about this, take a look at Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God calls Abraham out of his own country to go to a new land. He promises to give this land to Abraham's descendants. But notice that key last line, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He's already promised to make Abraham a great nation. And it is the Jews and the nation of Israel that comes directly from Abraham. But then it's said that in Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not just his direct descendants, the Israelites, but in this passage, in the passage I preached last time, rather, Paul begins to explain this. He says in Galatians 3.8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. And so though there was a particular blessing to the Jews and a promise to inhabit the land and all these things, the real blessing was something so much bigger. And Paul tells us what it is in this last verse of our passage today. Verse 14 says, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The blessing of Abraham is the Holy Spirit. And when you become a Christian, when you rightly see your own sin for what it is and cry out to Christ for salvation, it is the person of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity that then indwells you. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so there's this supernatural change that occurs when you put your faith in Christ for the first time. The old person has died and the new has come. And this change is brought about by the Holy Spirit. So salvation is this blessing of Abraham that is given not just to the Jews, but to all peoples. That's what Paul's saying. And just as God said he would do back in Genesis. And this blessing is yours when you put your faith in Jesus, who became a curse for you. 
Remember, we are blessed because Christ was cursed. And so there's this contrast then between the law and faith. Paul says, but the law is not of faith. Because the law, showing us how sinful we truly are, was always meant to point us to Jesus. It anticipated Jesus' coming so that we wouldn't look to ourselves and our good works, but rather in faith towards Christ. Remember the redemption of Edmund in Narnia was entirely accomplished 100% by Aslan alone, with no input from Edmund. And yet, though, though many of us here trust in this hope, we still come face to face with our own sinfulness each day. Perhaps for some of us, the message of the cross, which many of us have heard growing up in churches, if you, if you did grow up in church, and perhaps that message, though, no longer rings out as strongly in our ears. Perhaps for some of us, we have been sleepy Christians. And the fire that was once lit ablaze in our souls has now died down to a mere smolder. And our Christianity reduced from a passion to have more of Christ to nothing more than religion, politics, duty, power. I can tell you for myself that the greatest temptation I may face all week will be when I finish preaching this sermon. Because the devil says, you've done your duty. You've preached your sermon. Why care any more about holiness? Why care any more about prayer? Why pine after Christ any longer when the world has so much to offer? Church, has your passion for Jesus begun to flicker like a light bulb on its last ounce of energy? Remember today that Christ became a curse for you. Church, you've been trying to find joy in your merits instead of Christ. I've often heard many pastors recall a similar scenario like mine, but I often wake up at 6 a.m., I read my Bible, I pray, I do homework, I go to work, I be productive, I come home declaring that it was a good day and that I feel close to God. And the very next day I sleep in, neglecting my Bible, prayer, and homework, rushing to work, finding myself unmotivated and unproductive, and go home declaring that it was a bad day and that I feel distant from God. But oh, how flimsy my faith is when I attempt to find joy in the shifting quality of my performance rather than the unchanging qualities of Jesus Christ. How can it be that, 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 that a good day checking a box, that means I'm close to God. But if I fail to check it, that means I'm far away. So there's this mathematical formula that we just have to plug in somehow that equals holiness rather than a just genuine desire to have more of Christ every day. If this is you, remember today that Christ became a curse for you. We are blessed because Christ was cursed. We are blessed because Christ was cursed.
However, if you do not know Christ today, then know today, as Steve mentioned in his sermon last week, that he is the most inclusive yet exclusive offer simultaneously. The offer of redemption is available to anybody, and I mean anybody, regardless of what you have done, regardless of what you have done. Don't diminish the grace of God by thinking you've sinned too much. The offer of redemption is available to anybody who comes to Jesus, yet it is also only through Jesus that we may be redeemed. If that were not true, and there were many other ways, then we sit in this church for literally no reason whatsoever. But we sit here because we do believe that it is only through Jesus that we may be redeemed. So if you do not know him, then, then you are like that boat in the ocean storm, in the middle of the night. But that single beam from the lighthouse is meant to save you from the rocks. Christ has redeemed us from our sin. We are blessed because Christ was cursed. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now in this place. And thank you that you died on the cross. Thank you, Father, that you suffered not just in your body, but in your humanity were forsaken by God, Father. And you did that. You could redeem sinners to yourself. And that when we trust in you, we can have salvation. We can have redemption. I pray, God, for all of us here today that we may not have scales over our eyes as to the reality of the wickedness of our own sin, that we may not justify it, that we may not water it down, that we may not laugh it off, but we may know that we are wretched and deserving of hell, but you came that we may be redeemed that we may be saved, that we may have a relationship with you. So may we rest in that hope today. If anyone does not know you, may they trust in that today. And for those of us here who do know you, may we remember that today. And ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.